Well, good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have just started a new sermon series in the uh, life of David, so you're not far behind. It, we're right here at the beginning, and we're going to continue for the next 12 weeks or so on uh, what I think is some really interesting material. Uh, today's passage, Shilton's already alluded to it, the front of the bulletin uh, shows it. This is a, a very fun passage to preach as, as a pastor because we all obviously have a level of familiarity with it, but inevitably it's a superficial familiarity, which means we don't really know it. We don't know, we really don't know what it means, or at least I, I hope by the end of the sermon you'll walk away having um, a deeper appreciation and a greater understanding of the meaning of, and, and sort of maybe some light bulbs come on and, and you realize, wow, I never saw that before. Um, because it's, it's a fantastic, just a, a fantastic story. The Philistines in the Old Testament are the arch enemies of Israel. They were a seafaring people from, we think they originated in Crete. They had moved to Palestine and settled along the coastlines there in Israel. And in fact, the word Palestine derives from the word Philistine. You can kind of hear the similarities between the two of them. Um, so the, the Israelites were clustered in the mountains under the leadership of King Saul. And in the second half of the 11th century BC, the Philistines begin moving eastward, upstream along the floor of the Elah Valley, with the military objective of capturing the mountain ridge near Bethlehem and splitting King Saul's kingdom into two. The Philistines set up camp along the southern ridge of, of the Elah, and the Israelites pitched their tents on the other side along the northern ridge, which leaves the two armies effectively in a stare down where, where they're you know, facing one another, a large ravine and valley in between kind of a no man's land with neither army daring to move because to, to attack the other forces means that you have to descend into the valley and then make an assault up the other side's you know, mountain, which of course is, is very dangerous. And so finally, when the Philistines have had enough of, of this deadlock, they send forward their greatest warrior into the middle of the valley to offer his challenge. And we'll just pick up in verse 4 of First uh, Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to read the passage a little more quickly than I normally do just by virtue of the, the sheer length of it. And I, I don't intend, I don't mean any irreverence in doing so. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. He was over, it's notoriously difficult to understand how long an ancient Israelite cubit was, or even sometimes a shekel. So there are various height determinations for Goliath. And the, what I heard is that he's at least six foot nine, which in that day would have been absolutely enormous. So we'll say he was six foot nine. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine 
And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the, all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Skipping, skipping ahead to verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard him, heard it. When the Philistines saw the man, they all, uh, when, sorry, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter a marriage and will exempt his, family, his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the, the, the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide, divide the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done? said David. Can I, can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought it the same manner. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking about because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, putting them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. 
He looked at David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of El Shaddai, Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will, give, will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran out quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its scabbard, and he killed him. He cut off his head with his sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron, or Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shaharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapon, weapons in his own tent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Shout out to Jonah Starr. <laughs> so Jonah Starr is a freshman in high school in our church. He came up to me after last week's sermon when he heard that I'd be preaching on David Goliath this week. And he said, hey, uh, Pastor Cheney, did you know that Malcolm Gladwell has a book on David and Goliath? And he didn't know this, but I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. And I had completely forgotten that Gladwell had written this. And so he, he got the book to me this week and um, and it's, it's quite good. I put a quote from it on the front of the bulletin, and I am uh, drawing heavily from the book in the first half of the sermon. So thanks, Jonah. It's good. The story of David and Goliath, I think you would agree, is largely a flannel board caricature in our own minds. I chose the painting on the front of the bulletin. It is a, a early a 19th century Spanish artist uh, writing or painting in the romantic, um, oh, Karen, help me, <laughs> kind of like yeah, genre, you know, the romantic genre of uh, Spanish art, uh, Leonardo Alenza. I picked it because it's, I mean, you just look at it. It's, it's entirely unrealistic. <laughs> it's entirely unrealistic. It's, it is a bit of a flannel board caricature. And I think that even... If you have a strong belief in the historicity of the Old Testament, let's be honest. There are stories like this one where we are like 
did this really happen? Like, really happen? I, I mean, I, I'm sure something happened, but you know, did maybe the biblical authors embellish the story a little, a bit, you know? I mean, don't you have those questions that go through your mind when you're reading the Old Testament? This is one of those passages. And here, the first half of the sermon, what I'd like to do is just make my case for the historical reliability of the biblical account. So the first half of the sermon is, you kind of see it there in the title, yes, it happened, and here's how. And then in the second half of the sermon, what I'd like to talk about is the far more important uh, issue of, and here's what it means. So yes, it happened, here's how, and then here's what it means, and what it means unsurprisingly, is something very different than what you and I were likely taught in children's Sunday school. Verse 8. Goliath shouts out to the Israelites his challenge. And as he was doing so, he was asking for what is known as single combat, a very common practice in the ancient world. Two sides, in order to avoid the heavy bloodshed of an all-out battle— could avoid doing so by choosing one warrior to represent each in a duel. In offering this challenge, Goliath was clearly expecting a warrior like himself to come forward for hand-to-hand combat. Those were the terms of the the said engagement. It, It never occurred to him that the battle might be fought on entirely different terms. What did he wear? Goliath wore, number one, a coat of mail, which was made up of hundreds of interlocking bronze rings. And importantly, the Hebrew describes these rings as literally scales. He was scaly. It covered all the way, it covered the the coat of mail, covered entirely his arms and stretched down to his, his knees it probably weighed between 100 and 120 pounds. Secondly, he has bronze shin guards that protected his legs, which attached to bronze plates, which were covering his feet. Thirdly, he wore a heavy metal helmet. And fourthly, he had three separate weapons, all of which were optimized for close combat. Number one, so here we are, we're chronicling it again. A thrusting javelin, that's capable of penetrating a shield or even armor, a sword on his hip. And then the primary thing that catches the writer's attention is this, it's kind of like a special short-range spear with a metal shaft that says that it's as thick as a weaver's beam. So, you know, very thick. Uh, It likely had a cord attached to it and an elaborate set of weights that allowed it to be released with extraordinary force and accuracy. And you notice how the the author really focuses on um, this particular weapon. Now, nowhere else in all of the Bible is the weapon of a warrior or the armaments of a warrior ever given this level of attention, as is Goliath's. And what do you think the reason is for that? Because it's trying to convey... Uh, in the Israelite mind, this guy, I mean, he looks like an armored tank <laughs> with, with heat-seeking missiles. I mean, he looks like he, it's state-of-the-art weaponry, and he looks absolutely 
impenetrable, right? And, and unbeatable. But here's where things get interesting. So if you do any type of reading in military, ancient military history, you discover that ancient army, armies had three kinds of warriors. The first was the cavalry, armed men on horseback or in chariots. The second was the infantry, foot soldiers wearing armor and carrying swords and shields. And the third was projectile warriors, that is archers or slingers. And there's a Jewish military historian by the name of Baruch Halpern. What he argues is that each of these three warriors balance each other out, much like rock, paper, scissors does in that game. Um, So you have armed infantry can stand up to cavalry if they have, you know, long pikes, wooden or metal pikes that they can thrust into into the horse's chest or, or into the rider uh, of the horse or the, the chariot. Calvary could in turn defeat projectile warriors because the horses are moving too fast for them to take proper aim. But projectile warriors are absolutely deadly against infantry because a large lumbering soldier weighed down with armor is a sitting duck for a slinger who's launching a projectile from 100 yards away. So if you, you probably already know how the slings would work, but they would have two long strands of rope or of leather that are attached at the end with a pouch. You'd put a, a rock or, or a piece of metal in the pouch, and you'd, you'd hold both rope together, and increasingly you would let the rope lengthen as you swing it, you know, more and more. And then eventually you let go of one of the strands of the rope and it fires a projectile at an extremely high velocity. Uh, And so it took tremendous skill to learn how to do it well, but in an experienced hand, and here's the best analogy I could use. If you and I were to stand in, in the batter's box of a major league baseball game, and the pitcher is aiming for our heads, but he's throwing a stone instead of a baseball, and he's doing it at 120 miles an hour, you could see how that, yeah, that would be pretty devastating. And so Halpern, looking at previous events of military history, he cites this is the reason why the Athenian expedition to Sicily failed in the Peloponnesian Wars. I think he ends up um, referencing like Thucydides and his account of it. But, but in essence, Athens' heavy infantry goes up into the mountains leading into Sicily and is absolutely decimated by local light infantry who is principally using slings. So Goliath is heavy infantry. And he thinks he's going to be engaged in a duel with another heavy infantryman. And when he says to the Israelites, if you have a man, man, let him come down to me that I may give you his flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the sea or the field, the key phrase is come down to me, come right up close to me so that we can fight in close quarters. And then you notice that's exactly the same assumption that Saul is operating on. He thinks that David is going to fight as an infantryman. And so he tries to dress David accordingly, he assumes that he's going to go into it for hand-to-hand combat. 
And obviously, David is not playing upon with those assumptions. I mean, in essence, Goliath came to game with Goliath came with a knife to a gunfight, <laughs> right? So David intends to fight Goliath the same way he's learned to fight wild animals as a projectile warrior. So he runs forward to the to the field. He has speed and maneuverability. By contrast, for all practical purposes, Goliath is a stationary target. And so what can he do? He's carrying over 100 pounds of armor. Um, he's, he's literally prepared for the wrong battle. And then I read one ballistics ex- expert who said that slingers can do this really, really fast. I mean, in the blink of an eye, you can get the sling up to six or seven revolutions per second. And frankly, just before he even knew what hit him, like in the blink of an eye, you, that projectile would be enough to literally sink in to the forehead of a human being. Before I go into the second part, I, I just want you to catch this. Saul and the Israelites have sized up Goliath. They think they know who this giant is. He's this unstoppable warrior by all appearances. But, he, but there's more than meets the eye. And there's actually more than meets the eye in the text itself. For instance, Goliath comes down to the valley floor accompanied by uh, a servant who is functioning as a shield bearer. He's carrying Goliath's shield. Now, shield barriers were common in the ancient world, but they were usually used for what type of um, fighter warrior do you think they, they, were, they accompanied? they normally accompanied an archer because an archer is using both hands, one with the bow, one with, one with the arrow. The archer doesn't have any free hands, and so you would have a shield bearer who's there to protect an archer. Um, but well, why, if Goliath is a man of nearly infinite strength in hand-to-hand combat, why does he need to be assisted by a third party carrying an archer shield? And why does he say to David, come to me? I mean, by the same token, why can't he rush upon David? And then finally, there's the comment, and this is something that Gladwell uh, highlights, the comment when he spots David, David is there carrying a single shepherd's staff. But what does Goliath say? Am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks, as in plural, as in he sees something more than a single stick. And David is only holding one stick. Well, it's all of these, and um, the physicians, you doctors in our church, you can correct me, (laughs) but it has led a number of medical professionals, when they read this story, to conclude that Goliath sounds like, he sounds like someone who could be suffering from what is called arcro- I, just, I knew I was going to butcher it. Acromegaly, acromegaly, a disease caused by a benign tumor of the pituitary gland. The tumor causes an overproduction of human growth hormone, uh, and that could explain this man's extraordinary size. The, the largest man who's ever walked the face of the planet, R- Robert Wadlow, was eight feet tall, 11 inches and he suffered from that same disease, you know, the, the pituitary gland, whatever. 
Uh, and interestingly, then a, another common side effect of acromegaly is vision problems. Pituitary tumors can grow to the point where they compress the nerves leading to the eyes, which res- results in severely restricted sight or double vision. So that could, could explain why Goliath is led to the floor by a servant, because the servant was there as a visual guide. And that could explain why he doesn't see David, you know, get the sling out and start. He doesn't, he doesn't move very quickly or react very quickly, all because it might, there may have been a medical condition. In other words, it's exactly the way we were taught it in Sunday school, isn't it? <laughs> So there we are. There is what I think is the historical plausibility of this episode. And that is this episode from uh, a a human perspective. And that's just explaining how it might happen. But it doesn't explain what it means. The remainder of Malcolm Gladwell's book is designed to— I mean, he's a sociologist. So he basically gives a bunch of case studies on people who— resize their giants and find ingenious ways of overcoming them by, you know, changing the terms of of the battle. And that's the meaning that he makes of the Goliath story. And that's usually the meaning most of us make of the Goliath story. Uh, We we fabulize it, we moralize it. The bigger they are, the, the harder they fall. If I have faith in David's God, then I can conquer the giants in my own life. We've heard all of that. If that's not the meaning, then what is the meaning? I was talking with a friend this week, and he shared with me this theory, and it's a theory that I happen to believe in. What I think happens in the Bible is God, the divine author, puts it in a particular shape and form. Um, He leads the human author to write the story in a certain way, And the theory that we share is that the human author actually doesn't always understand the way that he's writing the story and how that connects to previous episodes in biblical history or foreshadows later episodes in biblical history. So he's writing the story. He's inspired by God. He ends up saying oftentimes things that are are even over his head. And, uh, and I think that's exactly the case that we have here. There are so many echoes to previous episodes in the Bible. And then, I mean, massive foreshadowings of Christ and what Christ is to be in the future. So that is what we have to look at in understanding the meaning. And I have three points to make on that. Number one, you notice what it was that Goliath wore onto the field of battle. And I already kind of alluded to this. He's covered in, he's covered in scales. Bronze, glittering scales. The sun is shining down. I mean, he would have shimmered out there. He's this enormous, bronze, glittering, scaly creature. What does that sound like? It sounds like the serpent. It's, he, is, he is a giant dragon. He's a red dragon in the field. And it's echoing, I think, the episode in the Garden of Eden. Remember, you know, God brought Israel into the promised land. He said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, This is, it's a heavenly kind of land. I purposely included 
the reference to Canaan at the beginning of the service because, you know, a lot of times the way the promised land was described in the Bible, it's described as a garden. And so what we have here is God has led his people into a beautiful garden and Saul has been appointed as the king who is in charge of protecting his people and the garden estate that they have been given. And now a scaly dragon enemy has come into the garden and he is openly defying and blaspheming the Lord. Just as it was the first Adam's responsibility to protect his bride and his kids and protect the garden, so it is with this second this, this, this Saul figure, it's his responsibility to confront the serpent. And what we see then is Saul's inaction points back to the inaction of the first Adam. Um, are, you, are we tracking so far? But there's a fantastic prophecy that is given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That one day a second Adam will come who will strike the serpent and essentially... Uh, crush his head. And so as Saul echoes back to the first Adam, David is clearly foreshadowing the second Adam, who at the end of the story is holding the head of a decapitated serpent. This stuff gets me excited. (laughs) You know, there are so many parallels with Jesus and David. Notice how uh, David arrives on the field of the battle. And how do his fellow brothers treat him? As soon as he's there, they're like, wait, you're just here to watch the fight. They they despise him. Uh, They they mock him. They can't can't stand him. And of course, that's exactly like Jesus was treated in his hometown by his own family. It's like Joseph was treated by his brothers. And then Joseph was raised up as a deliverer. David is treated like Joseph and raised up as a deliverer. Jesus is treated like a Joseph and a David, despised by his people and raised up as a deliverer. Four things are promised to the man who will defeat Goliath. Number one is he will end the blasphemy. He will, he will put an end to the one who is defying God. Number two is that He and his whole household will be freed from Saul's taxes, Saul's, um, you know, tributes, Saul's uh, military service. Number three, the man will receive a great prize of wealth. And number four, he will receive, did you catch it? He will receive a bride. And do you see? Jesus Christ comes onto the battlefield, battling sin and death and Satan. He puts an end to those who defy God. He, all who belong to Jesus, all of his brothers and sisters in his household, are no longer subject to everything they were subject to in the first Adam. Jesus receives an inheritance, a, a, a heavenly prize, a prize on heaven and on earth, and he receives a bride, the church. Just as David did. And then, okay, so that's the first one. (laughs) The second one uh, that echoes something from from, um, the previous point in Israelite history, and I think there's some legitimacy, 
I need water. <laughs> Legitimacy to this. It says that, thank you, Shelton. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Elsewhere in 1 Samuel, we are told that Goliath descends from a group of people who were the tallest people on the earth. They are called the Anakim. Goliath is a descendant of the Anakim. Does anybody remember where else in the Old Testament we find giants in the land? Well, you go back to Numbers chapter 13. Before Israel had gone into the promised land, they sent 12 spies to look at the land. And of those 12 spies, two return with a positive report. Joseph, I mean, uh, Joshua, whose name also means Jesus. That's what Jesus' name, name Jehoshua, uh, in the Hebrew, and Caleb. And they come back with a positive report. Then you have 10 spies who come back and say, no, we can't do this. It's a suicide mission. And the, the spies report this. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. All the people that we saw in it are of great height. And we seemed like ourselves grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. In Numbers 13, the people of God faced the threat of Anakim giants. And of, after observing those giants for 40 days, 10 of their leaders come back and urge the people to do nothing, to, to, to not fight, while Joshua and Caleb urge them to fight the giants with faith in God. In 1 Samuel 17, the people of God again face the threat of an Anakim giant. And according to, did I include it in here? I didn't. But if you look in your Bible at verse 16, how many days did they observe Goliath as he came onto the field of battle? 40 days. They again watch him for 40 days. And again, Israel has two representative leaderships. We have King Saul, who was passive and says, let's do nothing. And we have the future King David, who is ready to fight the giant with faith in God. Now, back in Numbers 13, the question that hung in the air for the people of God is who will Israel follow? What will Israel do? And the tragic story is that uh, they, they are faithless and they follow the 10 faithless leaders and refuse to go out behind Caleb and Joshua against the giants. It is reasonable to, to think that that same question hangs over 1 Samuel 17. It's almost as if God is once again saying to his people, who will you align yourselves with? Will you align yourselves with Jaleb, uh, Jaleb, Joshua and Caleb? And will you trust in me? Or will you hear the fearful speech of the 10 faithless spies and so refuse to take action? And you know what? That is just an ever-present question that is always facing the people of God. Who and what are you going to believe in? And what are you gonna, who are you going to align yourself with? Finally, number three, and this one is much briefer than the other, the other two. It's simply this observation. How did David kill Goliath? David uses Goliath's own weapon, his own sword, to kill him. Just minutes before, David, small, 
19-ish year old, unarmored, pitiful David stands before Goliath, who is massive and covered in bronze and carrying a huge weapon. And Goliath mocks him and, and despises him. And it's, of course, representative of what happened to our Savior when he was walking the Villa Dolorosa. What would happen to our Savior when he was stripped, when he, when he was beaten, when he was mocked on the cross? If you're the Son of God, save yourself. Augustine, the great um, theologian, you know what he called the cross? He called the cross God's mousetrap. <laughs> he called the cross, cross God's mousetrap. Mouse you know, he set the trap and Satan took the bait. And Jesus uses the devil's own weapon, death, to defeat the devil. I mean, that's what it is. He uses the devil's own weapon, the cross, to defeat him. Um, hallelujah. You know, when you start to see how these things fit together, um, I, I, I just hope it makes you say, the Bible is amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing. And God was writing, he was writing a consistent story from beginning to end. And I, I just hope it fills you with wonder and appreciation. Of course, I've only just scratched the surface of all of the different levels of this. But despite how things may appear, um, he will defeat this enemy of God and he will do it in a way that obviously dis displays that it is not human power that brought about the victory, but it is by the power of God. And that's exactly what he does on the cross of Christ. I like, I like the statement, David killed Goliath with a rock, with a stone. And that rock was Christ. Amen.